Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, December 14th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So today the Electoral College will meet. Uh, they will affirm uh, or, you know, uh, they will report out the results of their state-by-state uh, choices um, uh, on January 6th, the House and Senate accept the Electoral College counts. So this is not the day that Joe Biden officially, you know, basically all but officially becomes president. That day was November 4th, actually, uh, November 3rd, when he won the presidency the way that we think everybody the way everyone before him has won the presidency on election night by getting, uh, by, I guess, four o'clock in the morning, clearly uh, starting to uh, win Pennsylvania. So uh, the president of the United States is still acting as though he's got some arrows in his quiver. Um, We, Noah, you've been very, you've been sort of um, sanguine, I would say, in in a certain sense that the, the Michigas of the last month wasn't really going to matter all that much. Um, are you still, after seeing the uh, violence in Washington over the weekend and people like Alan West, the now chairman of the Texas Republican Party, calling for secession, the chairman of the Texas GOP, following the Arizona GOP, calling for people to die uh, to save the Trump presidency. And then this really deranged Jericho march with um, my old friend, Eric Metaxas saying that God is calling on everyone to, you know, to compel the nation to make Donald Trump president and Michael Flynn, who's also seems to have called for violence or secession or something or other, or a coup, um, you know, welcoming the, helicopter flyover of Donald Trump as though uh, it were, you know, Jesus returning to earth from, you know, uh, you know, anyway. <laughs> so how I a theological problem there. Yeah, yeah. Actually, well, it's not uh, my, it's, I, I'm not, I, I was, I was, I was weirdly between the resurrection and the second coming. So I'm, I'm sorry. I mixed, I was mixing up my, my metaphors there. Please it's a Monday. Forgive it's okay. my, well, A, it's a Monday and B, I'm a Jew. So I, but I have, I have great respect for the, for the, for, yes, the if I, if I can... for, for my Christian brethren and sister and and i don't want to seem at all offensive yeah so if i can be entirely unrepentant and aggressive in my defense of my own posture i haven't changed a single assessment that i ever rendered on any of this they have my the very first and only thing i ever wrote on this uh, that generated a lot of traction noted that this was an unprecedented effort by Republican elected officials and elected members, and certainly the president and his legal team, that it was utterly sordid and an assault on democratic values. What it was not, and was never going to be, was a coup. It was never going to assault or to undermine the foundations of American democracy, which is what we were treated to week and week and week on end from these people who were frustrated by this thing. They have since changed their tune and adopted what is the uh, uh, frustrations with and, and trepidation with what is the real threat posed by these efforts, which is the radicalization of individuals, of un, uh, unhinged people 
who are prone to uh, conspiratorial thinking and perhaps even violence who can be radicalized by this sort of thing. That is an entirely different threat, one very real and one which I share, a concern that I share, than the notion that this was a, an effort to weaken the very fabric of democracy that could result in some kind of extra legal effort to retain the presidency for Donald Trump. That was what they were saying. What I was saying is you're crazy. You're not crazy to be afraid of the possibility that radicals can be radicalized by irresponsible rhetoric. Abe, do you think that, let me put this, how do you assess the danger, the damage, the long lasting implications of the fact that a considerable number of Republicans uh, believe that this election was stolen and illegitimate? Is that a real belief? Is it simply a kind of team you know, we won, uh, there was a bad call, you know, the umps made a bad call and we actually won the World Series and it's not fair or, uh, you know, where where do you come down on this? Well, it's fine. I, I think I agree almost entirely with Noah. I think something that we disagree on, not from anything he said now, but in past discussions is I, I tend to take the conspiracy theorists at their word on this stuff. I think the majority of them do mean it. Um, I'm not I'm not talking about the opportunistic uh, politicians who uh, know better. Um, I'm talking about um, sort of larger numbers of, um, you know, uh, people who are not um, in leadership positions. And I think the damage, the potential damage is enormous because it's it's beginning to feel to me something like um, the beginnings of the mirror image of what we saw on the left over the summer. Um which is to say it's that same kind of civic collapse um, that um, it's all rotten. Um, uh, Their their, um, rhetoric is, frankly, revolutionary. Um, So um, it's... It's a horror show. Uh, I think it's a. I think it's very, very grave. I agree with Noah entirely that it, it that the horror is um, sort of you know sealed off from the um, actual uh, process by which we transfer power and 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 um, whereby uh, our democracy works. But um, that is not uh, comforting. Okay, but to mitigate that concern. Um, if anybody's interested in mitigation, and I don't think a lot of people really are, they they like the anxiety. But this is not dissimilar in tactical matters, tactical terms. And we talked about this on Friday from what we witnessed in 2016. Anti-Trump forces made a concerted lobbying effort in public and behind the scenes to compel enough electors to force the, the electoral college to to invalidate the verdict of the vote, to not get a majority, to send the vote to the House. This was accompanied by letters, the the Hillary Clinton campaign, John Podesta was out there saying this, bipartisan group of legislators were saying we need to, the electors need a briefing on Russia, Christine Pelosi was spearheading that effort, they couldn't vote as a result of it, and there were op-eds upon op-eds saying that the electors have a constitutional obligation to ignore the voters, to vote their consciences, it's actually in the document, this is part of what we, uh, democracy compels us to do, and the reason why you don't remember any of it is twofold. One, it was destined to fail just as this one was. And two, the prevailing consensus in elite positions and media and elite institutions liked it. They thought it was good. They thought it would rescue them from the, the, deliver them from the tragedy of a Trump presidency. It wasn't an assault on democracy. It was exercising democracy. And the difference is the partisan roles are reversed. That's it. Okay. Well, 
Let's get to the question of the 126 legislators who who uh, signed on or agreed to the Texas suit that was dismissed in a single sentence by the by the Supreme Court as being, you know, entirely lacking in standing and not worth hearing. Um, and the and the uh, very cynical uh, efforts by people who support the suit or support the trouble or whatever to claim that uh, because Justices Alito and Thomas said that they really should hear the case because of this highly complicated question of the of the original jurisdiction of the Supreme Court that if a <clears throat> if one of the several states sues another of the several states the Supreme Court is the first court there is no other court to hear it. That's one of the reasons the Supreme Court was set up, actually, as the Supreme Court, one of its few mandated responsibilities in the Constitution. <clears throat> but they basically said in that decision that they would find they the, ca- the case was meritless, except that they really did have to hear it. So they were prejudging its merits on the basis of the material that they had gotten, right? So, And yet, no- nonetheless, 126 Republican members of the House signed on or said they supported this. So what are the what does that mean? What is it what does it mean? Abe, what do you think it means? That 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 Republicans have signed on to it? What are the long term implications? Like you said, like yeah. you know, it's like there's a danger from the delegitimization, you know, uh, Noah's saying there could be crazy people in the streets who decide to shoot people up effectively. Right. You're saying that there's a, a delegitimization project that has a revolutionary tinge to it. Mm-hmm. That project has been implicitly signed on to a little bit, you can say, because mm-hmm. it was one, it's one piece of litigation. It was dismissed by the Supreme Court. Now they can say, look, we supported it, but we're going on. What are the long-term complications of any rational human being, let alone an elected official, signing on to that garbage case that was that is basically an act by the Texas Attorney General to 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 uh, handle for a pardon from Donald Trump because he is you know he's like in, in he's been indicted. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's it's very hard to say. Other other than that, um, it's it it doesn't bode well. Um, for uh, for the the political health of the country, it's I mean, it's hard to p- imagine how th- things spin out when they begin spinning out because it's b- by nature it's not uh, you know it's there it's it's not on a course it's 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 erratic um, and it's it's m- momentum is everything and it's all emotional and it has nothing to do with. Um, plans exactly you know right. um, we can do worst case scenarios everybody can do I worst don't want I'm not talking about worst case people, but the problem is that nobody ever does best case scenarios ever ever there is right. never any interest in doing any mitigating effort here and, and and applying caution and prudence when they're doing this kind of analysis and the result is we have a media culture that is just addicted to um, catastrophism. Well, right. So the, the, the best case scenario is that, uh, you know, we'll look back in 10 years and recognize how Trump brought out the crazy on both sides, right? There, there's definitely been crazy that he's encouraged on both sides of the reaction to him. And I mean, we might look at this particular document as an example of the kind of extremist posturing that, you know, weak Republicans felt they had to do while the party itself was in a state of disorder. Maybe the party will have been 
killed off by then and something new would have arisen. Maybe it will be, you know, returned to some sort of semblance of sanity. We don't know. But I don't, I, I kind of think about it like all those, remember all the crazy tree party treatises that people would sign on to back in the tea party days? Uh, so I, I, I'm seeing it more like that. Um, in re- I think in retrospect, we'll look back and see it as a kind of weird radical thing that people signed on to in the same way that I think we've appropriately criticized some political leaders on the left who have been signing on to more radical ideas about Black Lives Matter and about, you know, Antifa. And and we'll look back on those in the same way that we've criticized them throughout the summer. We should criticize the people who do that on the right. But I don't I, I think we'll have more perspective in even just a year on on this. But, well, can I, can I just say, though, I, I think if you look at the Tea Party um, as a sort of precursor to this, um, in the same way you could look at Occupy as a precursor to what's happened on the left in uh, uh, over the summer in terms of their um, uh, uh, revolution. Um, that is not reassuring to me because it shows a clear line yes. of escalation. Right. Is the proud the Proud Boys, so, for example, right. becoming the face of the Republican Party is not something anyone should. So, <laughs> so, so if it if it goes from you know the Tea Party to this. What what's next? I don't. That's my- I think I think that's a very important point because if you think about it this way, the there are two strains of thought on the right. Right, there are many strains of thought on the right, but there are two sort of approaches to let's say ideological or political combat. So one of them is let us uh, let us garb ourselves in the in the in the clothing of conservative and 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 traditional political philosophy. So the Tea Party, there's an element of the Tea Party that is we we are constitutional. <clears throat> they were talking about, you know, when Wick Santelli came out and said uh, there's this idea that the federal government should announce that all mortgages are, you know, null and void or wh- whatever, you know, there was that thing or re or sort of refocus everybody's mortgage rate to 3% or something like that. Or and anyone who isn't paying their mortgage should be forgiven. And then Rick Santelli said, this is not the way we do things in the United States. You know, uh, what about the 92% of people who are paying their mortgages, who are who are doing what they can to pay their bills? It's only 8% who are not. Are we going to refocus America in this direction? This is, you know, unequal treatment. This is, this is where the, this is how the Tea Party started, right? So the Tea Party happens and then there's all this like constitution celebration people are carrying around the constitution they're talking about the 10th amendment they're talking about they're memorizing it they're having rallies they're cleaning up after themselves they're doing this whole thing to say we are the proper civic culture the our ideas are proper civic ideas in the united states it's obama and these guys who are radicals who are trying to undermine the american experiment with their with their unprecedented you know intrusions on american life that then get that then moved into obamacare right then there's the other side, which is, you know what? You guys are all wonderful. You talk about the Constitution and you're all celebrating all this. You talk about order and civility. You know what? You fight. That's what you do. They're goons. They'll do anything. They have control of the media and and they have control of the universities and they have control of politics. They're totalitarians and they'll do anything and we have to do anything in response and not to do anything in response is to be a cuck 
and a loser and a coward and somebody who really probably likes the order as it is because it you don't upset your apple cart and you have your comfortable salary and you have your position in a think tank and all this and you're a wuss and a loser and you're probably a turncoat and you're probably a spy and if you're really a serious person you go at them the way they go at you right these are these two different strains and they sometimes have coexisted in the same person, you have the bizarre phenomenon of like the Claremont Institute and the Claremont Review of Books and the uh, things that are associated with them, who all reflect the revolutionary philosophy of the great Straussian lunatic and genius Harry Jaffa, who is a worshiper of the Declaration and the Constitution and the author of the greatest book about the Civil War. And all this. And so that's Harry Jaffaism. And then they're also totally in the embrace. They've totally embraced the, we must destroy them. They must be destroyed. And they have to be destroyed the way that they're trying to destroy us. So uh, this to me, it seems to be as an, it seems to be as an intellectual degeneration. But, you know, you can see why that's more attractive, right? I mean, you can see why. And you, if you, if you take, um, we could talk a little bit about this after the after this first break, but if you take some of the things that people are talking about right now in terms of the media, you can see why at least in this one area, the notion that like hewing to good civil standards may be an enormous mistake because you're never going to win because they they don't play fair. Um, so before we get to that, however, I want to talk to you about our first sponsor today, our friends at the Bonson Group. You know, I've been telling you how the vast majority of professional financial and investment advice is awful. Financial advisors are often lazy. They're disengaged. They're uninterested in the real work required of properly stewarding their clients' assets and if you get into the important stuff, their understandings of how markets work, the intersection of public policy with investing, the relevance of monetary policy in the Fed and modern finance, you might just talk to your own teenager or to your, I don't know, tween to get that kind, the kind of insight you might get from your regular financial advisor. The work ethic and the intellectual capacities in this field leave a lot to be desired, but that is not the case of the Bonson Group a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management. Every single day is an intellectual journey. Client communication is a way of life, and every bit of the Bonson Group's perspective on the economy and capital is developed by their own fresh resources and opinions. Every client, given his own bespoke family office experience, read their weekly investment commentary at DividendCafe.com, read their daily market updates at TheDCToday.com, and check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. Remember, DividendCafe.com, TheDCToday.com. Get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. Okay, so uh, I, I just, I'm going to throw three different media things at you guys, and let's talk about them. One, um, Hunter Biden's, the uh, the revelation that Hunter Biden is under a uh, very serious investigation by, I believe, two different U.S. attorneys um, in, in, different, in different ways. 
uh, comes out last week. And um, somehow it's not the biggest story in the world, even though he is the, you know, the son of the incoming president. We're talking about uh, bits of bits of uh, leaking that uh, that uh, he may not have paid taxes on the money that he got from the Ukrainian company Burisma stuff about some diamond that he got from China, various other things. Um, and uh, it still hasn't quite exploded. And of course, uh, as our friend Ben Dominich at The Federalist points out, uh, when this story first emerged in my uh, in the paper that I and Abe, and we all have written for, but I write for every week, the New York Post uh, came out, uh, people as august as John Brennan, the former director of national intelligence and CIA director, and Michael McFall of Stanford, who was ambassador to Russia, and some other people said this was a Russian disinformation plot, that the material on the laptop that was uh, that had been gotten by the New York Post uh, was fake and was faked, and it was a, a Russian intelligence operation, as Ben says. Where, where, where are their apologies? And where are the apologies of the media, who, of course, suppressed the New York Post story? The, the tech companies and other media companies that didn't do that. So that's number one. Number two... Uh, Lindsey Boylan, an Upper West Side New York uh, Democratic political activist uh, who ran against uh, uh, Jerry Nadler from the left uh, in uh, a primary, uh, sort of tried to AOC Jerry Nadler and lost and is now going to run for Manhattan Borough President, came out over the weekend on Twitter and said that she had been sexually harassed by Andrew Cuomo and that she was coming out to say this because she had read that he was under serious consideration as attorney general and that this should not happen. And what has happened? Crickets. Where are the where where are the big stories about the about Andrew Cuomo, the hero of COVID, and his sexual? We have here one of the reasons this should be taken as a credible as a potentially credible charge is that she has literally no nothing to gain from having come out. Not nothing. She is trying to run for office next year in the Democratic Party in New York City, run, running for Manhattan Borough President. It cannot help her. To be crosswise of Andrew Cuomo, the most powerful Democrat in the state, who is a vengeful person, known to be vengeful, known to take personal revenge against people. She did it, obviously, because she needed to say something. And under other circumstances, Lindsey Boylan would be a famous person today, would would be one of the most famous people in America today, and she is not. So that's that's Hunter, uh, Lindsey Boylan, and there was uh, there's a third, and I can't remember <laughs> I what it is right now. <clears throat> I can submit the third. What's that? Um, I don't know if this is your third. It's my third, which is the um, White House's uh, efforts to lobby the FDA to uh, submit emergency approval for the vaccine, which, as we speak, is being administered to the first uh, healthcare workers, frontline healthcare workers in the country. Um, on Friday, the White House uh, put out a statement from the president saying, or it was reported rather, uh, that the president had pressured. Uh, FDA commissioner to um, approve this, conditionally approve this vaccine uh, before the end of the day on Friday or submit their resignation. Subsequently, um, an approval was forthcoming. We don't know whether or not that pressure had anything to do with it, but there was a lot of consternation in the brief news cycle that erupted following that revelation that the president was pressuring the, the vaccine makers. It was valid, retroactively validating Kamala Harris's con, you know, concerns that this was going to be politically pressured. It's going to make people afraid to take this drug, um, take this vaccine rather. And then 48 hours later, you have a poll that shows people are more uh, comfortable with the vaccine, more so than they have been in a long time. You had Germany's Angela Merkel 
saying the exact same thing, lobbying European approval uh, mechanisms to, to get on the stick, what's taking them so long. Um, no consternation, no similar consternation has followed. And today we have the news cycle that is just joyous over the vaccine finally right. being administered. So I guess everybody forgot about the odious political pressure that the White House was putting on regulators who were dragging their feet. Right. Okay. So here's my point. My point is you have these stories, you have 10,000 other things. Um, and this notion that, uh, that there is literally no way for the non, for things that do not pursue either a leftist or democratic agenda to, uh, to gain traction or steam outside of the supposedly discredited ecosystem of the right wing media, Fox, OAN, uh, Newsmax, you know, uh, and and the panoply of publications on the right, and I, you know, that is a, that is increasingly becoming an argument that cannot. There's no way to disagree with it. I'm sorry, like there is no there is no excuse except for the panic over the possibility that the late hit on Hunter Biden was going to uh, damage or ruin uh, Joe Biden's chances uh, on election day and that the media having felt itself to have been partially responsible for Hillary Clinton's defeat because it did not suppress the email story in 2015 because it, it, it went deep into the emails, the, the destruction of her emails in 2015, uh, was not going to do it again and then basically prevailed on Silicon Valley joins in and the and in in suppressing the New York Post's public you know sort of popularization of the story and does anybody complain then not only don't they follow up on it but they but they act as though the suppression of the story is legitimate well and the before the Hunter Biden suppression effort, we had a sort of soft, a test of the soft power of the suppression effort on behalf of the media with the Tara Reid allegations against Joe Biden during the primary. And that's actually what I thought of when I saw the Cuomo news, right? Because he issues a denial. Uh, she, you know, she gives her story. It doesn't travel at all across mainstream media. It's mainly focused on by conservative media. He issues a denial. That'll be the end of it, just like it was with the Tara Reid story. And I think that for if you're conservatives and you think everybody deserves the benefit of the doubt when such accusations are made, then you think, okay, that's actually how it's supposed to work. But that's not how they've said the system is supposed to work. And in Lindsay Boylan's case, her actions are very similar to Christine Blasey Ford's uh, decision to only come forward because she thought someone was going to be given power that they didn't deserve because they had previously abused that power um, when Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated to the Supreme Court. So she's doing the same thing, but because he has a D after his name, it's fine. So I do, I mean, personally, I think it, we should have skepticism. She's in doing the same stuff. thing. She's except, doing the same except thing. Except she worked for Cuomo. Like, yeah, she actually worked we, directly for We literally for have no knowledge of the relationship right. at all. And it was 35 years earlier right. and all this. She worked well, for Cuomo yes. five years ago. So Four she's, years ago. Yeah, she's far more credible in the same way that, that actually Tara Reid's uh, account was far more credible. Again, she had worked for, she worked uh, with Joe Biden. And yet Christine Blasey Ford was given, given you know, uh, 
months of a news cycle and testimony before a congressional committee for her claims. And we're seeing these buried. Now, I don't, again, this is not a judgment on whether these claims are legitimate or not. And we should presume the innocence of the accused, but it, that, it, it just keeps happening. So when people say, oh, you know, the right wing media, they can't be trusted. I think, well, maybe not, but <laughs> some of them can't be, but a lot of them are raising legitimate challenges to the way that these narratives are constructed and those have active those cause active harm in terms of people's ability to understand what's going on with people in power. You know, part of this also is that um, if this was two years ago, I think um, mainstream media outlets would have a much harder time um, ignoring the the accusations against Cuomo. I think uh, Me Too is just far enough in our rearview mirror um, that that they can play this kind of hands-off game with it. Yeah, and they also do the, oh, don't we have bigger concerns? Whenever right. a major yep. story comes up, it's like, we have a pandemic going on. We have so many other things to worry about. You're like, well, we, <laughs> no. I mean, this is, this is the story. No, but but, but I even think- when those allegations against uh, Brett Kavanaugh were basically dismissed, if not discredited, or discredited rather, if not dismissed, um, we were treated to a lot of commentary about how that, dismissal was itself uh, truly psychologically damaging for at least 51% of the country. It just about every woman in America was harmed by your failure to not reflexively lend credence to these allegations because that, that was their experience. If they ever experienced any kind of trauma like that too. And we've just seen that disappear, that concern disappear, which suggests it was never legitimate. It was always a political cudgel. Right. So let's go back to my point here, which is, we can talk about how the American political system uh, is being put under undue strain by this notion that the election was stolen. And there are two different aspects of the election being stolen narrative that involve the media that are problematic. Uh, But I mean, problematic from, from an argumentation perspective, one of which is that polls showing that Biden was winning in a landslide were suppressive, right? This is a word that Trump has used in his tweets and stuff. These were suppression polls intended to depress Republicans and not have them turn out. Now, there's a central problem with that thesis on Trump's part, which is that Republican turnout was gargantuan. So if they were intended to be suppressive, they did not have the suppressive effect. 74 million people voted for Trump. It's just that 81 million people voted for Biden. So... Um, so that that's number one, but that the promulgation of polls at a time when polls are inaccurate that showed Biden winning in some states, you know, by uh, or like for example in South Dakota, the final po- polling average had Biden losing by sixteen and he lost by thirty two. Now I don't know what how that matters except that it shows that this notion that the polling was good was systematically again was false because even in places where where you know everybody understood Trump was going to win, the polls showed Biden wildly overperforming, thus clearly suggesting there was a nationwide bias toward Democratic voters that was not corrected and apparently not correctable, and therefore speaks to the systemic problem with with polling. But that's that's point number one: is that the suppressive polls, and the other are these are these news story. You know, the, this whole notion that news, the way the news is structured makes it impossible for Republicans to win. Now, I I reject this wholeheartedly. I think I said this on Friday in part because Ronald Reagan had an unbelievably hostile press and won 49 states. Nixon had an unbelievable hostile press and won by 25 points. 
that was when there were no counter voices. There was no countervailing media. There were no countervailing cable channels or anything like that. So this notion that the American people can't break through and make up their own minds uh, despite a, a media narrative it has been disproved uh, time and again. But these are two very important things. It is true that the polling was systematically un, uh, wrong, and it is true that the coverage of Trump was so overwhelmingly negative and the coverage of Biden was so overwhelmingly defensive that, I don't know, the weak-minded didn't may not have uh, been properly affected in Trump's direction or something like that. Uh, Christine, as our media commentary columnist, where how should we be thinking? I mean, this is where I say, like, we have to be a little sympathetic to the idea that that no one on the right can get a fair shake, and that's delegitimizing. I, no, I think there's certainly truth to that, because at the same time, when, when uh, conservatives criticize the mainstream media's liberal bias and respond by creating their own institutions, those institutions are then you know, denounced as being uh, sources of disinformation. Now, some of them are. I mean, just as some of the sources of information on the left are, are, are sources of disinformation. But I think that, you know, if the there's really no way to win if you're a conservative who's trying to craft a message, right? You either, you either are called uh, spreading propaganda disinformation, you should be suppressed, or you're just called, oh, it's just sour grapes because you don't have your own institutions that are as, uh, you know, estimable as the New York Times and and, uh, the, and National Public Radio. So you can't win. So I think if you embrace the idea that you can't win if you're coming from conservative, then you can start to find value in, in certain mainstream media outlets, which have, there are some really good reporters doing really good work. And you have to learn who those are and you follow, you know, you read their stuff and you're skeptical of any narrative crafting that happens in real time. And you try to find alternative sources. I mean, most of us, I think, read widely. I mean, I read stuff on the far left and the far right, because I want to kind of get a sense of the overall feeling. Most people don't have time for that. They'll create a bubble. They'll get their news from Facebook. That's it. That's why I actually think the big thing in the next going forward, and particularly during the Biden administration, is the suppression of stories. The attempt, um, largely by these tech platforms, as we saw, it worked. It worked for them to try to shut down a story. Now, the story became, the suppression itself became a story. But I still think there was a lot of information that the public should have had some uh, access to that didn't come out during the election that probably should have. And if things were running in a way that was truly free and liberal and in, in, in how we want to get our news. Abe, Abe, in terms in terms of the revolutionary thing, this is where I wanted to get to. So you can't get a fair shake. So does this does this in some sense help explain why the you just have to kill them the way they're trying to kill you through any means necessary, as opposed to we're better than they are. We like the Constitution. They don't give a crap about the Constitution. Like why one is winning over the other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the idea that you don't get a fair shake means that um, you can't win at this game given the current rules. So you have to go outside of the game. You have to you have to do this other revolutionary thing. Um, well, and that was what QAnon was, I think, in some ways. It wasn't as scary as people made it out to be. It was an attempt to try to craft a narrative when you mistrust all your sources of information that you're being fed. Right? It was. It, it's it's surreal. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, because you got to remember. Uh, a conspiracy theory is is kind of an ideology because it's a it's a theory about how the world works. So it, it gives you a whole alternate 
you know, a sort of ideology to, to sort of analyze and, and see things with. Um, the, the bedeviling thing, John, about the two points that you make here, one is, you know, the, the, um, the um, attack coverage and the poor polling is that so I'm thinking about it and I said, well, okay, but, you know, it may, the, the coverage maybe doesn't matter that much because um, Americans trust of the media is at an all time low. They have, they have, they're, they have discredited themselves. And then I think, well, wait, I'm basing that on polling. <laughs> so, I right. so who knows? Right. Well, you know, but yeah, okay. So let me, let me just step back for uh, another second and talk to you about our second advertiser, Mac Weldon, the premium men's essentials brand that believes in smart designs and high quality fabrics. Mac Weldon's offer offers a one-stop shop for men's basics, socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, whatever you need. Mac Weldon has you covered. Unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up your top drawer, all of Mac Weldon's basics have a consistent fit that you can count on. From socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, Mac Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit. You're not just going to look great in Mac Weldon. Their materials perform well too. From working out, going out, going to work, or on a date, Mac Weldon is for everyday life. Offers a wide range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. And Mac Weldon has created a totally free loyalty program. Level one gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach level two by spending $200, Mac Weldon gives you 20% off every order for the next year. Mac Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep them and they're still, they'll still refund you. No questions asked. That's Mac Weldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Um, Noah, let's talk about the COVID uh, vaccine release because you, you said... Well, that- briefly, I'm going to interrupt oh, you because ahead, I need to okay. expand on and, and respond to <clears throat> what Abe said and expand on the theory as to why this is all a bunch of horse manure. Um, what, which, what is a bunch of horse manure? The, the, the theory on the part of we talked about before the theory uh, posited that um, the Republicans efforts here are uniquely um, destabilizing and could yield some sort of an extra legal event. The reason why this is so disheartening is because it is so profoundly cynical on the part of the people who are agitating for this sort of thing. Nobody who's saying that like uh, Alan West in Texas, these people who are saying, you know, calling for a second American revolution is another civil war, something like that. They're not acting like it. They're not taking their AK 47s and heading to the Hills and trying to organize some sort of a partisan rebellion here, because that would be a pathway to irrelevancy. The re- something you said on Friday, John, is that we don't have a whole lot of words for coup in this country, in part because we don't have the conditions that allow for that sort of thing. So we have no historical memory of it, as you likened it to. You don't need a thousand words for snow if you live on Krakatoa. Now, if Krakatoa erupts, you might get snow. It's not impossible, but it's extremely unlikely. And the reason why it's extremely unlikely is because there is no pathway to power through extra legal mechanisms in this country doesn't exist. So the people who pursue power do so through the ballot box. And both the coalitions seem to find some sort of a power in, or rather a a motivating force in talking about themselves as being extremely aggrieved, extremely victimized. That's a way to create a coalition. But you use that coalition to go vote. You don't use that coalition for any other purpose. So the power that this has is 
is to radicalize individuals who are prone to radicalization. I think you can draw a straight line between the kind of agitation that Democrats did in 2016 and the attempt to kill Republicans at a baseball field in Alexandria the year later. Just as I think you can draw a straight line between Donald Trump's agitation and what uh, this guy did, you know, create these pipe bombs and send them to um, to media outlets. I think you can you can draw a straight line there. What you can't do is do anything but a slippery slope argument, eliding the pathway from A to B in order to make the case that this is some sort of a profound threat to American democracy. Nobody makes that case compellingly because it cannot be made compellingly. It has to be made through inference. And so if that is the conditions that prevail, then that's something that should give you a little bit of hope. It doesn't excuse anybody's actions here. It it, it rather is an indictment because it's so supremely cynical, but it should be reassuring to some degree. Right. Well, okay. So let's talk about this. We have a, we have a tradition in this, country largely i would say pop culture tradition of the celebration of the doomed revolt you know that like um every time somebody wants to make a stand against the government and it's really noble and wonderful and then basically they get crushed right because because it goes all the way back to the efforts to uh, lionize the confederacy under under wilson earlier than that daniel shannon rebellion the early the early years of the uh, of the country when there were there were serious systemic challenges to the legitimacy of the of the newborn united states that had to be suppressed they were suppressed by militia that's one of the reasons we have the second amendment says that there need to be militias which to defend the country from people who would split off from it or say they're not going to obey the laws the way everybody else is and all of that, right? So, but there is a kind of American folk tradition of celebrating those who say, I'm not taking it anymore, the sort of love of outlaws or the, the Hatfields and McCoys. I don't care what the, you know, moonshiners, however you want to slice it. Um, but, you know, in other countries, those things really can end up having gigantic cascading political effects and they can't hear because power is so radically diffused. That's the joke about the Texas lawsuit is that Texas was suing four other states for harming their votes because Texas, because Trump didn't win the national presidency. This is Texas, the state that acts like it's its own country. And if anybody sued Texas on the grounds that say it's guns were you know shooting people in in Wisconsin, uh, Texans and Rick Perry and people like that would all like have a total meltdown, and properly so. So we diffuse power in the United States, and it it annoys people when what they want is centralized authority, when they want Trump to make a coup, or they want they want to sort of agitate for stuff like that, and there is no mode. If you actually think about it, it's interesting. You know, seven days in May, this famous uh, 1960s story about a coup in Washington. So how do you make a coup? If you were Donald Trump, how would you make a coup? Well, you would you would send tanks on the Capitol or something or blah, blah, blah. Or you would like surround the White House with tanks so no one could get in. How is that going to affect Topeka? How is that going to make the uh, Fort Hood, people in Fort Hood follow the orders back in Washington because they don't know who's running it. Like that that's why power is diffused in the United States, right? But that doesn't speak to the long-term question of people on the right saying 
that Biden's election is illegitimate, that we need to have a coup, that we might need to secede leaders, leaders of one of the two parties in the United States. I mean, it's not that Alan West is is some major Republican figure. He's a crank. I mean, I sort of know him. I, uh, I, you know, I met him. Uh, He was on a National Review cruise once I was on uh, before he clearly went insane. He's sort of an impressive uh, person uh, then and not so impressive now. But I mean, so he's not like an elected leader. He's not that, but he's a person of some standing, and he called for secession. He called for he called for another civil war. Effectively, I mean, you can't just dismiss that. You know, if AOC did that, or Ayanna Presley did that, or I, I, you know, like we would be we would be screaming it out the window. Look, and, I, I have to be you know consistent with the the argument that I made in um, yes, this is a revolution. Um, which I said of the left, that what what marks a revolution is not necessarily um, uh, guns and violence, although we've seen plenty of that, um, it, but is um, a it's a revolution in the way the country views itself. Um, and once that happens, we're already in a different place, essentially. Um, d- does the entirety of the right um, have they um, decided that um, we are a different country than they thought we were uh, four or five years ago or, or a, a year ago even? I, I don't think so. Um, as Noah says, they're not acting entire, in, entirely and in unison as if they, they do believe that. So, but, 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 you, but you have to be consistent in, in applying that to both sides. Well, and there's also, there's long been, the reason Trump was able to fill the power vacuum on the right is that there has been a lot of dissatisfaction with the leaders that the right has been, been elevating both politically and culturally. And there's a, the, the, the populist strain arose for a reason. And it wasn't because they were worried about left-wing socialism. It's because they, they thought a lot of their own leadership was talking down to them, was a bunch of elite technocrats, just like they were on the left. So they they put someone in office who was neither, or so they thought. And that right now, I feel like we're in this weird power vacuum moment where Trump is clearly out, but we don't know what's coming next. And all the people who could step up and, and take more of a leadership role are just biding their time until January. So I don't think we're in a kind of, you know, John Braun's raid on Harper's Ferry and what will Lincoln do moment. But the, the, the talk, the rhetoric is very overheated, but I think it's more indicative of the the uh, weird sort of purgatorial moment we're in politically, particularly for Republican leadership. Right. Well, Abe, I would say that in terms of the of the this question of the revolution, that the the particular evil genius of the of the moves uh, in twenty twenty uh, or you know twenty nineteen uh, was to say that America was born uh, was born sinful, right? And 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 so. Uh, the, everything about America's greatness is a myth that we were basically born to 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 extend and institute slavery, and that uh, purifying that, rectifying that original sin is the work of our time, um, and and somehow right reorienting America in this revolutionary fashion. That is not. This is a radically different message. It's that very important kind of, distinction. Yeah, kind of we were better. And now they're destroying right. us, and the revolutionary mode needs to overthrow cultural liberalism or cultural socialism or whatever to as a form of restoration. Although I'm not quite sure re- restoration to like I don't know where you ratchet back since you know 
apparently Bush fought forever wars and Reagan was a wimp. And, you know, I don't know when, I don't know when the good times were exactly. I mean, the Eisenhower administration, the Coolidge administration. I mean, you know. Not if you're female. (laughs) Yeah, Tom Watson. Watson? I don't know. I mean, Tom Watson, not the golfer. But you're right, though. But that's an extremely important distinction. And even though, yeah, it's hard to pinpoint what the moment is. You have you have to remember that at the heart of all this is the idea of making America great again. So it so it was right. it was great at least. Yes, right. Yeah, I mean, that not to defend. By no, the way, no, no. By, by the way, when I say it's different, I just mean that you know its ideology is different because it does not. There's a nihilism about it that actually is not the there. The sixteen nineteen project is 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 psychotic idealism. And the we have we're in a perpetual war and have to fight and kill because it's kill or be killed has a nihilistic streak to it. I mean, you know, when when I read the kind of you know the the old cuck logic of 2015 2016, and these guys, these kind of like political pornographers like Kurt Schleister and stuff like that, you know, uh, talking about how everybody that they disagree with, you know, is emasculated and doesn't have testicles and that w- whatever you want to say. That 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 has this quality of everything stinks, so it might as well stink in our direction rather than in their direction. Like, why do they get to you know? Why do they get to make movies and run TV? We should do that, and we'll make disgusting movies and TV. Like, it, it's got that that quality to it. Now, let me uh, talk to you about if you're feeling disgusting. One of the best ways to get out of feeling disgusting is to brush your teeth. So let's talk about Quip, the toothbrush. And the you know the great electric toothbrush we've been talking about for for forever with the durable handle that's easy to guide, uh, and I want to talk to you about the new thing that they're offering or relatively new, uh, the reusable floss pick. Uh, restrings with a click comes with a compact mirror dispensing case for on the go. A single refill pod replaces over 180 single use plastic flossers, so it's better for your teeth and the environment. And if you're not a pick person, it also has a refillable floss string that expands to clean. You can pair your floss with the perfect electric toothbrush. You know, those timed sonic vibrations with guiding pulses, nine premium brush colors, anti cavity toothpaste for every taste in mint and watermelon, and you can get amazing rewards just for brushing better every day. With the free Quip app, your toothbrush can connect to it, and you can get free products and discounts as you track and coach better oral health for two minutes, two times a day. Quip also delivers brush head floss and toothpaste refills every three months from $5. Shipping is free, so you can save money and skip the store this holiday season. Check out Quip's exclusive deals. And if you go to getquip.com slash commentary right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's get your first refill free at getquip.com slash commentary. Spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary. Quip, better oral health, made simple. Christine, um, commentary's uh, 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 oldest living continuous contributor since 1963 is my dear and beloved friend Joseph Epstein, uh, who uh, wrote uh, his uh, memoir of writing for commentary in our 75th anniversary issue. And uh, uh, Epstein, whom I, uh, whom I call Red, he calls me Toots. This is a, this is a shtick. So, I will <laughs> so Red wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about how Jill Biden shouldn't be called doctor. 
And uh, this happened. Uh, uh, he is um, 83 years old. He is a, uh, you know, he has written 19, 20 books. He is uh, maybe the last surviving serious literary critic in the United States uh, of, of long-term vintage. And, um, you know, maybe the, the greatest uh, uh, personal casual essayist of our time. And he said, you know what, uh, shouldn't, you, she's not a doctor, she shouldn't be called doctor. Uh, so drop it, kiddo. And um, the world has come down around his head. So can you, can you, uh, you, Christine Rosen, yes. Dr. Christine Rosen, PhD, Emory University. I can't remember what your field is, but it's not medicine. It's history. History. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So first, first uh, of all, I just want to say. I have long attempted, and you guys still refuse to call me by my preferred title, which is Zarina. I'm, <laughs> this is what I've been asking, and I know you make fun of me behind my back. But, so here's the thing about the Jill Biden thing. Joe Epstein's gently mocking piece, I read it and thought, this is, this is funny, because most of us behind Jill Biden's back have been mocking her relentlessly for decades. I mean, Jonah Goldberg had a great little you know, squib on National Review Online years ago saying, why does she insist on calling herself Dr. Jill? So here's my problem with it. First of all, she is not, the convention in the United States is that you call yourself doctor if you've attended medical school. That's what doctor means. That's what most people in, in their day-to-day lives think of when they think of doctor, a doctor or a dentist, right? Medical doctor or a, a DDS. So when she goes by in, in the academy, and if you're you know a student in, in college, you sometimes call your professors doctor. When I was a grad student, we did refer to most of our professors as doctor so-and-so, doctor such-and-such. Um, outside of the classroom, though, that wasn't the convention. Many of them actually preferred professor or just call me you know by my first name if you're a grad student. So her first of all, she does not have an MD or a PhD. She has an EDD. This is a degree that takes two, maybe three years to get. It's for people who want to earn more money as school administrators and whatever capacity, 68% of graduate degrees in education go to women. So she's not some sort of beleaguered minority pursuing a graduate degree. And by the way, the majority of PhDs in this country go to women. So the idea that it was somehow sexist uh, of him to suggest that she not call herself doctor is ridiculous. And then there's the media uh, hypocrisy here. If you look through the pages of newspapers like the Washington Post, the New York Times, they don't call real medical doctors doctor if they're on the right. So Ben Carson, uh, Henry Kissinger, there are plenty of people, Condoleezza Rice. You can find plenty of men and women who are actually either medical doctors right. or PhDs. Ben, right, right. And, and they're not Carson, called doctor. Yeah. Ben yeah. Carson was a brain surgeon, right? I mean, exactly. you have, yeah, and they you literally have, won't yeah. call him doctor. He's a brain surgeon. But so yeah. my, the thing about the Jill Biden thing is that she clearly, and Joe Biden himself has told this story about why she pursued her education doctorate. It's because she got sick of being called Mrs. Biden. She felt like it was unfair to just be seen as the wife of a senator, the wife of a vice president. So boy, was she mad. She was going to show them. She was someone in her own right. So there's a weird sort of grievance narrative to this already. So the idea that we all have to go around calling her Dr. Jill, which is, by the way, also her Twitter handle, it's ridiculous. And what it's saying is that the media should kowtow to a Democratic president-elect whose wife's ego requires her to be referred to by a term that most people don't accept as being commonly used. So I think Epstein's getting yelled at because he's an old white dude, right? They don't like that. And a lot of people are arguing that the Wall Street Journal shouldn't have bothered to even write this sort of piece. There are so many other more important concerns. There's a spot on the page for these kind of casual, gently mocking 
sorts of pieces. And many of them have been written over the years about any number of subjects. So I think it's an absolute tempest in a teapot. And I feel bad for Joe Epstein, but mainly I think it proves what the next four years of media coverage of the Biden administration has in store for us, which is absolute sycophantic nonsense. There, I've said my piece. And I will insist on the Tsarina title. I'm not going to drop that. (laughs) Okay. I'm glad you said that because my my daughter has been working for a week on a paper about Catherine the Great's uh, instructions to the Russian Legislative Assembly. So I've heard more about Catherine the Great uh, in the last week than anything. I'm going to say two things. Number one, Joseph Epstein is a wonderful person. He is one of the most delightful, kind, thoughtful, amusing, um, uh, and uh, and and uh, literate and 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 funny. And he's a great guy. And they can all drop dead. This is all nonsense. He wrote a piece. He went to the University of Chicago, where we were directed, uh, as I did, uh, you know, uh, several decades apart, where he, where we are directed not to refer to PhDs as doctor. They are to be called Mister. Profe- you're not to call them Professor. Um, I know a funny story about the great theater director Tyrone Guthrie. Tyrone Guthrie, who was considered the great. Uh, a British director, a uh, great tragedian, like he knew how to uh, stage uh, tragedies, but he was like a, you know, he was a, a middle-class uh, guy and, and um, uh, he got an honorary doctorate from some, I don't know, Carnegie Mellon or something like that. And after that, if someone would say, you know, this is, uh, you know, uh, Tyrone Guthrie, meet my friend Hugh Weldon. This is a, some of the family friend of ours. Uh, and, uh, and Hugh said, you know, how do you do Mr. Guthrie? And he said, uh, Dr. Guthrie, because of course if you get an honorary doctorate. You're just like, you know, how many, you haven't tend- been knighted. Like, I just don't understand. Yeah. Well, so yeah, I just want to make a, a, a larger, my father has two, I could call him Dr. Podhoritz. <laughs> my father got an honorary doctorate at Boston university, the same year that Jason Alexander, who did not graduate from Boston University, got an honorary doctorate at Boston We can call Jason Alexander Dr. Alexander. I mean, this is, okay. Hey, well, I just want to make a point about, about titles and credentials in America. Um, there is a reason that we call the president only Mr. President, plain and simple and ordinary. It is because we don't believe in the elevation um, by virtue of, of title. Um, in this country. That is not, that is actually sort of at odds with the way we view um, the structure of society and power. And it, and it marks a difference from the, the, the nation from which we broke off. I will brook no such attacks on John Adams as you have just rendered. <laughs> I, I do want to also say that after four years of uh, of extraordinarily grudging and unpleasant treatment of Melania Trump, who did nothing to deserve any of it, who is an unshowy person, who did not seek the spotlight, who did not seek to have an effect on public policy, who seemed to be very, uh, who seemed to be in this in a somewhat regretful fashion. She is lampooned and mocked. She is mocked on 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 Stephen Colbert. Uh, by Laura Benanti and all of that. That apparently was totally free and fair and fair game and stuff like that. But Dr. Jill Biden, uh, who walks around with a with a with a ludicrous title, is not. I mean, I I do think that it may have been. You know, it's like not wise to go at the 
you know, the wife of the president or an incoming president, no matter what party. I don't think that piece went after her. It was written in a sort of an amusing fashion. The fact that he said, you know, don't do it, kiddo, uh, when we know that Biden repeatedly called his wife kiddo in public. Um, uh, and, you know, the last word that you would use to describe Joseph Epstein, if you have been reading him over the last 60 years, is obnoxious or unseemly or 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 anything like that like he is a graceful person he is a person of of deep grace and and you know Jill Biden wants to call herself she that you can make you can sort of make, make gentle fun of this pretension uh, without having your character assassinated. This kind of a, a policing of honorifics, though, is ultimately really good for us. Uh, I remember this is very reminiscent of the Obama era, though, when you were a conservative issuing a criticism of Barack Obama or his administration, his defenders in the press would first elicit a compliment. Because if you couldn't compliment the administration before you criticized it, thus neutralizing your criticism, you couldn't be taken seriously because you were deranged. You had, you had lost all sense of proportion and rationality. And that's the same, you know, impulse that we're witnessing here. And it ultimately rendered Democrats both intellectually soft and unable to navigate their environment, their political environments, culminating ultimately in 2016 and the profound uh, uh, cognitive dissonance that that resulted in. Um, and if you're we're veering into that same sort of situation, it will be good for the right because the right will be able to think and speak clearly. Well, and this is this is why even Jill Biden's response to uh, Epstein's piece was kind of this, oh, I'm going to take the high ground and say, one day we'll live in an America where women's accomplishments will be respected. Sorry, I'm laughing, but I just, the point is not that we don't respect that she went and got an advanced degree. Washington, D.C. is lousy with people who've got advanced degrees. The point is that we shouldn't be made to bend the knee to her sense of, of you know, superiority because she has that degree. And that goes to Abe's point. I think you're absolutely Absolutely right. It's why we require foreign people who have titles to relinquish them to become citizens. It's 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 important. It is democratic small d. I do uh, what, one more note here. Uh, this has to do with commentary. Uh, we don't in in an author's name. We don't include doctor. Uh, it's same same with published letters on articles. Um, sometimes they come to us with you know. Uh, uh, doctor so-and-so commenting on an article and, and we don't, unless they are a medical doctor. Otherwise, otherwise we don't, we don't use it. I, I want to conclude this section by talking, uh, by reminding you of this quote. And yet you guys have one chance of uh, telling me where it's from. Why anybody can have a brain that's a very mediocre commodity. Every pusillanimous creature that crawls the earth or slinks through slimy seas has a brain. Back where I come from, we have universities, seats of great learning where men go to become great thinkers. And when they come out, they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. But they have one thing you haven't got, a diploma. Therefore, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Universita Comitiatum e Pluribus Unum, I hereby confer on you the honorary degree of THD. That's a, a doctor of thinkology. You guys know where that's from, right? Of course. I don't. Right. You're well, not allowed to be an American if you don't know where that's from. Okay. Well, and that Deport is me. how Americans. That's right. <laughs> really? Don't really? Recall? You haven't seen that the movie? Wizard of Oz. It's the Wizard of okay. Oz. I haven't seen it in a long time. The diploma. When he pins the diploma on the scarecrow, the scarecrow suddenly has he, he has no more brain than you. 
but all he needs is a diploma, and then he is therefore a, a, a towering intellectual genius. I was too traumatized by the witch and the monkeys as a kid to watch it I'm as sorry. an adult. So there you go. I'm sorry. Anyway, that is America. America is go stuff your diploma. You know, I mean, you and your <laughs> diploma, you can have a fine. You take your diploma, and I know that you're a boo, but you know you're a boo. Or to quote, and all of us know many people with PhDs who are idiots and Ed, and Ed Deeds. It doesn't mean that Jill Biden is an idiot. I she seems to be a very able and capable person. Uh, but having a degree confers on her nothing except that, uh, you know, except the, you know, uh, having no more brain than anybody else has uh, uh, of necessity. At, so, yes. Well, I was going to say, at the risk of undermining our entire argument here, I, I feel compelled to quote Donald Trump, who said, I love the uneducated. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! All right. Well, we will uh, we will wrap this up for today. Uh, thanks uh, to you guys. Uh, everybody, uh, think uh, nice thoughts about uh, Joseph Epstein. Uh, still going strong at eighty three. We'll have a piece by him in our uh, February issue. And for uh, Noah, Christine, and Abe, I am John Podhortz. Keep the camera burning.